On this episode of the Concast, we review the most recent consensus statement on concussion in sport. and welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode 133. I hope you're all doing well whatever day of the week you're listening to this episode, and I hope life is going well for you. I just got recently back from Calgary where I was teaching some concussion stuff to a group of very eager massage therapists. And then following my return to Calgary was at the RMTAO conference doing a presentation on a massage therapy perspective on individuals that are struggling with concussion-like symptoms. So thanks to everyone that came out. Thank you to everyone for the kind feedback on those presentations as well. I'm presenting in person if you're interested in a few different Other conferences coming up in the year, I believe I'm at the Canadian Sport Massage Therapy Association Conference in Niagara Falls later in the end of the year, and as well I'll be in St. John, New Brunswick presenting later at the end of the year also. that's There are a couple of other smaller in-person things that I'm doing virtually, but in terms of big one- and two-day presentations, I think that will probably be it for this year. I'm trying to take a little bit of a lighter year just to reframe things and work on a few little projects myself. Uh, I've been waiting for this paper for quite some time now. This is the newest consensus statement on concussion in sport, a summary from the 6th International Conference on Concussion in Sport that was held in Amsterdam in October of last year. And the most recent consensus statement on sport-related concussion prior to this one was in 2017. So it's been around six years since new research, not necessarily new research, but a new consensus statement on sport-related concussion has been published. This was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, I'll link the reference in the show notes. This is a free and available paper, so anyone can access access it. And I highly recommend that you have a read, even if concussion isn't necessarily a huge part of your practice or your life. It's always a, a great read to look at these summary statements to see what has changed in the concussion world over the last half a decade or more. A consensus statement is essentially where a group of experts in a particular field come together to discuss a number of different related topics in a, as they relate to a disease and injury in medicine, for example. And they try to come to a consensus or a majority on certain statements. And so with respect to this consensus statement, you have some of the biggest names in concussion coming together to have a conversation around things like return to sport, the definition of concussion, and then a lot of tools and papers come out as a result of this meeting. 
And so what I want to do is just, I've read through this twice already. This is my third time going through it, but I want to take you through the paper and discuss some of the points and kind of give you a real-time thought process of how this might affect my practice or things that I'm thinking about with respect to maybe further research that I need to read. So if you deal with individuals that have suffered concussions from a sport-related activity, you are an athlete yourself or you have children that are athletes, which is almost everyone, you should definitely take something away from this podcast. One of the first things that I'll mention is that from this consensus statement, the tools that are used to, or one of the tools that is used to predict and assess individuals that have thought to have suffered a concussion have been updated. More recently, the most up-to-date tool was something called the SCAT-5, and we're now into the sixth edition of the SCAT. So the SCAT is the Sport Concussion Assessment Tool. There's now a sixth edition of that that has been published. I wouldn't say it's too much different, but there are a few little nuances that are different from the SCAT-5. There's also a child SCAT-6, And then there is also a new tool called the Sport Concussion Office Assessment Tool. And then there is a Concussion Recognition Tool. And so all of those tools have been updated to reflect the current guidelines, as well as there have been some small nuances that have been changed within each. So I'll just take you through some of these highlighted points of mine. As we go, I'll think out loud as to how this might change my practice or change my teaching. The first thing is that this statement around the authors recognize that there are differences in geography, healthcare structure, and culture, and these are important considerations when implementing the principles that are presented within this paper, which I think is a really great way to start a paper because we do know that there are many psychosocial factors that go into the nuances of how people recover, access to care being one of them, as well as things like annual wage, the ability to afford maybe um, healthcare that's not publicly funded if you're living in a, a country that doesn't have publicly funded healthcare. So we take all of this information, we present it, but then there's an understanding that this is highly variable. So from this paper, there's also a suggestion that there are 10 systematic reviews or 10 other studies, as well as a paper that's discussing the methods by which this research was done that are suggested to read. Um, this is all present within in this paper as well. At the start of the paper, there's a key point section which summarizes some things of importance. And the first thing is something that I'm really, really happy to see. And it reads as, the results of computerized neurocognitive tests should be interpreted in the context of broader clinical findings and are not used, or to be used rather, in isolation to inform management and diagnostic decisions. So what that means is there are many clinics, I'm sure you've seen them around, that offer baseline testing, and baseline testing is a computer-based test. Impact test is a very popular one. There are some other ones depending upon where you are living in the world. So the group of researchers here is suggesting that these are used as a part of management, not necessarily as a singular tool to return athletes to play. Most individuals that are really responsible clinicians in managing individuals that have had a concussion do know this and have stated this for many, many years now. 
But unfortunately, there are individuals that are still using this as a primary means of management and nothing else. And this can be uh, unsafe for the individuals that are under those people's care. So I'm glad that this statement has been brought to light. Furthermore, there's a statement regarding things like imaging. So there are things beyond MRI and x-rays and CT scans that are used in concussion research. Things like functional MRI, um, diffuse tensor imaging, these advanced There's also some advancements in biomarker testing or fluid-based biomarker testing, genetic testing, and these emerging technologies. The paper states that while these are emerging technologies and can be used in the research space, they're not really suited to be used in clinical practice right now and or maybe never. And this is interesting. I've heard other researchers in the concussion space talk about this, that There probably won't ever be a blood test to diagnose a concussion or a biomarker test to diagnose a concussion, but there may be blood tests that talk about prognosis or are able to assess prognosis or how well someone is maybe recovering. And I think that this statement or this key point kind of speaks to that, that while a lot of these biomarkers and advanced imaging tests offer utility in research, They may never get into the clinical space for a variety of reasons. This might have to do with expense. This might have to do with the ability to deliver a particular test. Again, it's continuity across an entire population. Another key point, something that we've known for a long time, strong evidence exists regarding the benefits of physical activity and aerobic treatment as early interventions for individuals with concussion. Individuals with persisting symptoms, symptom duration of greater than four weeks should be evaluated with a multimodal clinical assessment, including the use of standardized and validated symptom rating scales. So in this paper, one of the things that is maybe a little bit different from some of the other research that I've read is that the symptom experience greater than four weeks is, they're defining that as just persistent symptoms. There's been other research that I've read that says one month to three month period is characterized as post-concussion syndrome and then symptoms beyond three months is considered to be persistent post-concussive symptoms. This is a little bit more consistent with persistent symptoms in any type of thing that we're suffering. Chronic knee pain, chronic back pain is typically characterized as pain that is present for three months or more. This doesn't really change much. It's more semantics. But I'll have to look at some of these research papers associated with the consensus statement a little bit more further to see whether I'm going to change up some of my presentation material to reflect that. So that might be a bit of a change. Basically saying anyone that hasn't recovered after 30 days is now in the persistent category instead of anyone that hasn't recovered inside of three months is in the persistent category. And this, um, I also believe, is for both pediatric patients and adult patients. Speaking of the pediatric patient population is that there is very limited evidence for sport-related concussion research in individuals between ages 5 and 12. So if we go to this section on recognition, the sport-related concussion definition has first been updated in this consensus statement to read a little bit more specifically. A sport-related concussion is 
defined as a traumatic brain injury caused by a direct blow to the head, neck, or body resulting in an impulsive force being transmitted to the brain that occurs in sport or exercise-related activity. This initiates a neurotransmitter and metabolic cascade with possible exonal injury, blood flow change, and inflammation affecting the brain. Symptoms and, and signs may present immediately or evolve over minutes to hours and commonly resolve within days, but may be prolonged. There is no abnormality seen in structural imaging studies, so for example, MRI, but in a research setting, abnormalities may be present in functional blood flow or metabolic imaging studies. Sport-related concussion results in a range of clinical symptoms and signs that may evolve, as well as involve loss of consciousness. These clinical symptoms and signs cannot be explained solely by drug, alcohol, or medication use, other injuries, or other comorbidities. There's some additions here from from six years ago, talking a little bit more specifically about what a concussion is, so that metabolic injury. So first someone has a slip and fall, a biomechanical force goes through the brain, and that creates a metabolic injury, meaning the neurons or the brain cells get injured, and that affects our metabolism or the amount of energy that is required for us to do certain tasks, and then we get symptoms as a result of that. This, again, doesn't really show up on the standard images that we have, so MRI and X-ray and CT scan. A lot of the education around those studies is that the vast majority of people with concussions don't have any of these findings, and therefore, as long as there are no red flags present, individuals don't necessarily need to get an x-ray or an MRI. And then I like this last point, which is the clinical signs and symptoms cannot be solely explained by other things. So drug and alcohol use, for example, or a comorbid condition, which means something additional, an additional disease that someone might have. And so part of our job as clinicians is to try and make sure that during our health history intake that the person hasn't started medications that might be causing symptoms They might have something else going on, maybe in the context of a mood disorder, they're experiencing, let's say, anxiety or depression, but they're also perimenopausal. Might that be contributing? Are they experiencing a headache with some visual disturbances and they have high blood pressure as well that hasn't been caught or diagnosed? Essentially, when these things can't be explained by any other thing, and we know that there is a history of a biomechanical force and an incident along with signs and symptoms being recreated on physical exam. That's when a concussion may be expected. In terms of the prevention aspect of concussion, which is largely talked about, and I've talked about this on other episodes as well, the majority of studies in the sport-related concussion prevention topic or field, 60% of those studies are related to children and adolescents. So the majority of people in these studies are below the ages of 18. We sort of see this trend in a lot of concussion research in it, in that the majority of sport-related concussion is in younger individuals. And so when we are trying to take some of these suggestions and apply it to the general population, it's important to recognize some of, some of that. We've seen over the last few years policy change and rule change in certain sports in an attempt to prevent concussions. So, for example, body checking in hockey 
has reduced the rate of concussions in games by 58% in some studies, so some of the studies that are quoted in this paper. What has also been looked at is the greater number of years of experience in body checking leagues did not necessarily reduce concussion rates in adolescent leagues. Now, the argument here is that, look, if we reduce body checking in younger youth leagues and reduce the rate of concussion, the counter argument is that, oh, they won't learn how to hit. Therefore, when you get into adulthood or adolescence, the rate of concussion in those competitive hockey leagues is going to go up because they don't know how to take a check or they don't know how to deliver a check. And so what this policy or rule change is suggesting is that that is not the case. We can reduce the number of concussions in child and youth sports and not necessarily have a deleterious effect when people get older into uh, more advanced stages of hockey. We've also seen uh, American football across all age groups reduce the number of contacts that individuals are taking in and as well as collision time and practice. This has had a 64% reduction rate in practice-related concussions um, and has also reduced head impact rates overall in the sport of football. And this is another one that is news to me. This is a newer paper, um, and I still have to read this paper itself um, regarding personal protective equipment and some evidence now that mouth guards were associated with a 28% reduction in concussion in ice hockey in all age groups, uh, indicating that mouth guards should be mandated in child and adolescent ice hockey in all levels of play. So I still need to look at this paper. This paper just came out in the British Journal of Medicine in June, and this consensus statement was only released a week ago. But this paper's titled Prevention Strategies Modifiable Risk Factors for Sport-Related Concussion and Head Impacts, a Systematic Review of Meta-Analysis, by Paul Eliasson, and there are a number of other well-known authors on this paper, including Catherine Snyder from University of Calgary, who was one of the lead authors on this consensus statement also. One of the other prevention suggestions is training strategies, so some participation in on-field neuromuscular training warm-up programs completed at least three times a week has been associated with lower rate of concussion in rugby union sports in all groups. So maybe a suggestion that a proper neuromuscular warm-up might have some carryover into other sports and prevention. And I think the great thing about a lot of this stuff is the behavioral interventions are quite simple to adopt, especially in terms of policy or rule change at the youth level and warm-up. Obviously, with personal protective equipment and mouth guards, there's a cost associated with it. As a result of that, the panel unanimously supports the following recommendations. Mouth guards should be used in all child and youth hockey. Policies disallowing body checking should be supported for all children and most levels of adolescent hockey. Strategies limiting contact practice in American football should inform related policies and recommendations for all levels. Neuromuscular warm-up programs are recommended based on research in rugby, and more research is needed for female athletes and in other team sports specifically targeting exercise components aimed to reduce concussion rates. This is often talked about the fact that female representation in concussion research is lower. There's also some discussion around female concussions generally take a little bit longer to heal. 
and the conversation around neck strengthening has always been a part of the research also. So essentially in this consensus statement, the conclusion of that is that there needs to be more high quality research in this area. The next part of this paper is discussing sideline evaluation. And some of the highlighted things that are discussed, first and foremost, something that we've known for a really long time, signs that warrant immediate referral from the field include suspected loss of consciousness, seizure, altered posture, complete loss of gait, poor balance, confusion, behavioral changes, and amnesia. And while this has been a really common conversation, we've still seen at the highest level some examples of this in recent years, and I've talked about this on other podcast episodes. Maddox questions still remain a useful part of a brief on-field exam for athletes that are greater than 12 years of age. Maddox questions are basically orientation questions. So, you know, do you know where you are? Do you know what time it is? Do you know the score of the game, etc.? They've been used as part of the on-field concussion exam for a really, really long time. And then lastly, a sport concussion assessment tool or a SCAT tool can be used for discriminating between concussed and non-concussed athletes within a 72-hour period. So the majority of research for the SCAT tool is within the first 72 hours after injury. It can be used up to five to seven days if you have used it within 72 hours of injury as a means of following concussion. But if you have someone that's either coming into your office two or three weeks later, it's lost its validity in terms of being able to recognize concussion at that point. So that is why it's often used in the sports setting and often used very close to the time of injury. After there is a sport-related concussion, there's usually some type of follow-up in a office setting. Some interesting stuff that I'm seeing in the section around office assessment is one particular point that I'll probably implement myself, talking about the measurement of systolic and diastolic blood pressure, which I already do, and then talking about taking heart rate in two positions, and I generally only take heart rate in one position. The supine position for two minutes and take measurements, so supine position is the person lying on their back, which is usually the position that I take in measuring a heart rate generally. And then following that, have them in a standing position and then measure it again. I think that the primary reason for this is there seems to be an emergence of discussion in the concussion field about increased incidence of something known as POTS, which is a essentially a hyper-adrenaline syndrome where individuals become very tachycardic or they have a really, really high heart rate. As a result of that, they experience a lot of anxiety because their heart feels as though it's beating out of their chest. And while POTS exists, there seems to be the potential that there may be increased incidence of POTS in individuals that have suffered from a concussion. Now, POTS is generally related to posture. So transition of postures from lying to sitting, sitting to standing or lying to standing, And so I think this is one of the reasons why there is a mention of taking heart rate in multiple positions. And so I'll probably start doing that myself in the clinic, adding an additional position for taking heart rate and comparing those to see whether or not they're grossly different. There is a point 
uh, in the paper regarding in-clinic evaluation, suggesting that it's not unusual for athletes to experience fear, anxiety, or depression associated with concussion or pre-injury conditions exacerbated by concussion. So they either already have a prior history of mood disorder or they have a new mood disorder. And then it says where deemed appropriate, healthcare practitioners are encouraged to screen for symptoms using validated mental health instruments, which is great to see. And then it further goes into the computer-based testing. It says neurocognitive test batteries where accessible may add value to assessing sport-related concussion. Computer-based batteries, especially in comparison of reaction times against patient baseline and community norms, may be useful. The results of these tests should be interpreted in the context of a broader clinical finding and not be used in isolation, which I mentioned earlier. The next section within the paper is talking about rest and exercise. For the longest time, we have known that pure rest is not advantageous for people that have suffered a concussion, and this continues to be the messaging. The best available evidence shows that recommended strict rest until the complete resolution of symptoms is not beneficial relative brackets non-strict rest, which includes activities of daily living and reduced screen time is indicated immediately and for up to the first two days. Clinicians are encouraged to recommend early return to physical activity as tolerated, usually again within 24 to 48 hours. And even during that period of relative rest, people can be encouraged to, again, go out and, and walk outside, consume podcasts, but minimize screen time. Uh, The best data on cognitive exertion shows that reduced screen time use in the first 48 hours after injury is warranted, but it may not be effective beyond that. This is a study that I did an episode on, I believe at the end of last year, which was a study by MacNow, looking at the pediatric population in the United States, where they did a study where they restricted screen time for 48 hours in one group and then allowed the other group to consume screens as they saw fit. And the restricted screen time had better outcomes. So again, this is, you know, this best data is is really only based on a couple of studies. But again, it's a behavioral intervention that is safe for individuals to adopt with really very minimal negative side effects to it. So that is something in my teaching that I've started to suggest based on, well, now in this consensus statement, but even prior to the consensus statement, removal of screens for the first 48 hours might be beneficial. It also says healthcare providers with access to exercise testing equipment can safely prescribe some sub-symptom threshold Uh, aerobic exercise treatment within two to 10 days following sport-related concussion. And this can be tailored towards an individual's heart rate threshold. We know that this research, again, has been done for years, predominantly by the group out of the University of Buffalo, John Letty. And there is a new paper that came out, again, as part of this consensus statement, another systematic review by John Letty and his group that I have yet to read, but I'm sure it's got some great information as well. One key point about rest and exercise that they do mention regarding sleep disturbance is that sleep disturbance in the 10 days after sport-related concussion is associated with an increased risk of persisting symptoms may warrant an evaluation and treatment. So if sleep is problematic and the person doesn't have a history of sleep issue, then this 
can sometimes lead to more persistent symptoms. And so that's one of the reasons why sleep hygiene, sleep education, trying to get behaviors around sleep and trying to regulate sleep as early as possible in the process. You've heard me talk about sleep mood headache still seems to be one of the priorities in that it seems as though with sleep issues within that first 10 days, there is a higher likelihood of persistent symptoms. So it still seems to really hold true that education, early activity, management of resurgence or new mood disorder, and sleep still seem to be the really big things in concussion management. It does talk about rehabilitation in the context of dizziness, neck pain, or headaches persisting more than 10 days. And this idea that in those circumstances, cervico-vestibular rehabilitation is recommended. I've done other podcasts on cervico or neck rehab as well as the vestibular system and its rehab. I've always suggested that these things done inside of 30 days, particularly vestibular rehab and, and eye rehab, I've been of the thought in recent years that we may be pushing a little bit too much in that time window. Now, the thing about this statement is this is about one paragraph long, and the breadth of exercises that are given by individuals. You could take 10 individuals and all of those exercises are completely different. So defining cervico-vestibular rehabilitation is quite difficult. Will I start neck strengthening early or isometrics to manage neck pain early? Certainly. If somebody is experiencing dizziness would I suggest that they seek out vestibular therapies or ocular therapies at day 10? I don't currently do that for the reason that, especially if they're symptomatic, a lot of these rehab strategies from, say, 10 days to 30 days can be really, really symptom-provoking. You get poor buy-in from the person as a result of that. And I think I will probably continue to make that suggestion. I think the majority of my colleagues that work in that space too right now seem to be kind of with me on that, that having someone between day 10 and day 30 maybe shake their head really, really fast might not be the best strategy. Whereas there might be other strategies with neck strengthening, proprioception, that type of thing that can be adopted earlier at, say, day 10. So I'm not saying that cervico-vestibular rehab can't be used at day 10. What I'm suggesting is this definition of cervico-vestibular rehab is a very broad spectrum ranging from things that are 0.5 on a scale of 0 to 10 in provoking versus a 10 out of 10 in provoking symptoms, any great clinician will be able to look at the certain patient or person in front of them and be able to make graded, again, sub-symptom threshold recommendations based on where they need to be in terms of that particular spectrum of exercise. It's kind of going along the same lines as starting things early, but again, can you do too much too soon? Most certainly you can.
Next, there's a section on the role of biomarkers and technology in assessing recovery, which is really, really interesting. It's always been kind of an, of interest to me. It says advanced neuroimaging, fluid-based biomarkers, genetic testing, and other emerging technologies are useful for research. However, further research is required to validate their use in clinical practice to assess recovery or agent clinical management, which I mentioned earlier. Fluid-based biomarkers, electrophysiological measurements, modalities assessing autonomic dysfunction show promising sensitivity to acute neurobiological effects and changes over the sport-related recovery. More evidence across multiple biomarker domains suggests that a time window of physiological change may, may extend beyond clinical recovery resolution of clinical signs and symptoms. So this is super interesting. To summarize, there are ways of assessing the nervous system's response to brain injury. There are also ways of looking at metabolites of brain injury or biomarkers of brain injury in blood. And what's this suggesting is that in certain individuals, this may in fact draw longer than a clinical recovery. Clinical recovery meaning the person's back to playing their sport. They have no symptoms whatsoever. And I have heard other researchers talk about this. I don't know that it really offers us much more in terms of literally that statement while these technologies maybe advance and make their way into clinical practice. It does bring up interesting thoughts around people that really, really struggle with recurrent concussions seemingly after they've recovered fully from a clinical setting. I think this just emphasizes the importance of trying to look at concussion through a multimodal lens, which they brought up a number of times in this consensus statement, and having a number of different individuals assess each person individually based on their needs. There's also a section here that was also in the previous consensus statement talking about return to learn. They state that the vast majority of athletes, 93% of all ages, have full recovery and return to learn with no additional academic support in the first 10 days. So their suggestions are that to minimize academic and social disruptions during the return to learn strategies, healthcare providers should avoid recommending complete rest and isolation even in the initial 24 to 48 hours and instead recommend a period of relative rest. Early return to activities of daily living should be encouraged, providing that symptoms are no more than mildly or briefly increased. That is greater than two points on a scale of zero to 10. As a result of that, trying to encourage things like environmental adjustment, physical adjustment, curriculum adjustment, testing adjustment in that first 24 to 48 hours, essentially trying to keep people involved in school activities as much as possible, starting things at maybe a length of something as simple as five minutes or 15 minutes, and then having larger breaks in between. It seems as though, based on their evidence, that keeping people engaged in social settings and learning is of benefit rather than, again, removing for weeks or even months. And there are return to learn recommendations. There are also plenty of other organizations. Can Child, I've referenced another podcast, Parachute, with great resources on return to learn. It often takes a backseat sometimes to return to sport, but in my opinion, return to learn is probably more important than return to sport unless the individual does it for a living. I like to see, again, trying to 
adopt strategies for active recovery as much as possible. Speaking of active recovery, the return to sport recommendations haven't really changed much. Again, allowing active or athletes rather to engage in activities of daily living immediately following injury in a relative rest period. It also states unrestricted return to sport following sport-related concussion typically occurs within one month of injury in children, adolescents, and adults. Again, the majority of people are back to their pre-injury status within that 30-day period of time. One of the changes that they've made in the return to sport kind of strategy overview is there are six return to sport categories, symptom-related activity, and then the second stage is aerobic exercise, which they've now divided into kind of a 2A, 2B, so light being 55% of heart rate max and then moderate being 70% of heart rate max when doing using your heart rate to guide your aerobic activity, which I think is a little bit newer. And then between steps three and four, so steps four to six should begin after resolution of any symptoms, abnormalities, and cognitive function, any other clinical findings related to current concussion, including with and after physical exertion. And the suggestion there is that if that has not occurred, then individuals seek out care through their healthcare provider to help them facilitate that jump from say, doing some sports-specific activities like shooting the basketball on their own at home to doing a practice with their team and then full contact practice and then return to sport. If you're going through the program, you've done steps one through three, and now you're wanting to return to your team and do practice drills, but you're still struggling with symptoms and you haven't sought out care of a healthcare provider at that time, they're suggesting that you do. I'm suggesting and suggest to everyone that they do get a healthcare provider that's well-versed in concussion from day one to help them facilitate the process as it can be just a little bit daunting if you're not familiar with it. There's also a quite a lengthy section in this consensus statement on the long to potential long-term effects of concussion, which is becoming more and more discussed. In this consensus statement, studies that examine mental health as an outcome found that former Amateur athletes, primarily American football players, are not at increased risk for depression, suicidal thoughts during early adulthood or as older adults. Point two, former professional soccer players are not at increased risk for psychiatric hospitalizations during their adult life. Point three, former professional football and soccer players are not at increased risk for death associated with having a psychiatric disorder. There's also some statements regarding the risk of cognitive impairment. So former male amateur athletes were not at increased risk for cognitive impairment, neurological disorder, or neurodegenerative diseases compared with men from the general population. However, in contrast, studies of former professional athletes examining causes of death reported greater mortality rates from neurological diseases and dementia in former professional American football players and professional soccer players. This brings about the debate of, and we'll talk about CTE in a moment, which I've done some other episodes on as well, but essentially what they are saying is that based on the research, and the reason why they've only quoted certain sports is that, that is, those are the sports where the research currently lies, there doesn't seem to be any difference with those individuals that have participated in these sports against the general population. 
one note here after those statements have been made are that the studies to date are uh, methodologically limited because most were not able to examine or adjust for many factors that can be associated with mental health and neurological outcomes. They make this statement regarding the research, and then they also make this statement around the other potential factors that might influence the challenges involved with mood disorder. Educational attainment, socioeconomic status, smoking, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, sleep apnea, to name a few. Some of these other comorbidities that can lead to the development of mood disorder. This is an interesting statement that has been made on the research. The next section talks about CTE specifically. And it does say that the literature suggests that CTE is very uncommon in community sample and brain banks using strict criteria for case identification. However, these studies of former athletes are not cohort studies that can examine causation and quantify risk, and thus were not included in the systematic review. So a lot of the long-term CTE research essentially wasn't included in this consensus statement for the reasons stated in that they do not believe that the quality of the studies or the type of studies are, if you want to use the word good enough, for the consensus statement they're putting together. Their follow-up statement to that is, it is reasonable to consider extensive exposure to repeated head impacts such as the those experienced by professional athletes and is potentially associated with the development of the specific neuropathology described as CTE. It then goes on to discuss that there's now been a first consensus criteria for traumatic encephalopathy syndrome or TES which I've talked about I believe on other podcasts also. And then goes on to discuss a lot of the challenges in the diagnosis of CTE and that it's often done post-mortem after someone has passed through a autopsy of the brain. It does also go on to talk about the, the prevalence of athletes and whether there's you know a 5% greater risk of developing CTE. It's not also known whether CTE causes specific neurological or psychological problems just yet, what those specific or neurological or psychological problems are. It's not understood well the extent to which CTE can be clearly identified within the presence of an associated Alzheimer's disease and how to parse those out, and whether CTE is inevitably a progressive neurological decline or not. So this is just a hotly debated topic. The continual history of concussion or the continual participation in sports where repetitive low-grade head impacts occur. I've done other episodes and other papers that have sort of suggested otherwise, and this will always be a hotly debated topic important nonetheless, and this is much more discussed in this consensus statement than it was six years ago. It is also the primary goal of the number of individuals in this research paper to examine the potential long-term effects of concussion. So in the future research section, 
as well as the majority of participants at the Amsterdam Consensus Statement Conference, 64% of them want to look at the potential long-term effects. Looking at the you know complexities of answering these important questions, um, trying to come together and look at whether some of the stuff that we're finding in the research can be more clearly understood in terms of whether repetitive head impacts or multiple concussions over time do in fact lead to further complications. Lastly, and certainly not least, there is a discussion regarding concussion in parasport. Estimates approximately 15 to 25% of the global population of individuals with disabilities that are participating in sport. The concussion experience in the para-athlete is unique due to the interactions of the individual's primary impairment and the pathophysiology of concussion, and certainly this would vary person to person. It says, although the literature describing sport-related concussion in people with disabilities is limited, elite Paralympic athletes are known to be at higher risk of injury when compared to athletes with no disability. And then it goes on to provide some suggestions from the more recent position statement on concussion in parasport. The first is individuals may benefit from baseline testing given the variable nature of their disability and the potential for atypical presentation. Secondly, individuals with a history of central nervous system injury, for example, cerebral palsy or stroke, may require an extended period of initial rest. Thirdly, testing for symptoms of concussion through recovery may require modifications, such as the use of an arm ergometer as opposed to a treadmill if the athlete is unable to perform a test on a treadmill. And then return to sport protocols must be tailored and include the use of an individual's personal adaptive equipment and for applicable participants with visual impairment partnerships with a guide. And then it states, future research is needed to enhance the knowledge for concussion assessment and management in parasport participants. There are some additional kind of sections that in my opinion, aren't providing much new in the way of recommendations on the pediatric population. And then that's really kind of the conclusion of the consensus statement. All in all, I'm excited to get into the associated papers that were released as well, particularly on prevention and also just the use of uh, exercise versus strict rest, which we know is pretty clear in the research that active participation as early as possible under guidance is is always leading to the best outcomes. So if I think about how this might change some of the things that I look at move forward, moving forward, I certainly want to investigate this mouth guard piece a little bit closer. I want to look at heart rate variability, so to speak, or the variation of resting heart rate in different positions. I may end up again changing my take again, I think for the second or third time around persistent symptoms and concussion now being beyond say the 30 day period. And again, that's just more for teaching sake. I'm not, it's not really a conversation that I have with the people that I would see clinically. And then I think for me, I'll probably be looking a little bit more at the biomarker technological studies to see just out of interest what they are bringing up in the topic of concussion. For those that are interested in reading the paper, again, I'll link the reference in the show notes so you can go. Again, this is uh, just published about a week ago, but it is available for free. 
And again, all the new and updated tools, the SCAT 6, are available as a result of that. And uh, just looking at the reference section, you'll be able to get any of those newer papers if they interest you to have a read of those also. So folks, I hope that uh, you found some value here. This was, I've been looking forward to reading this paper. I know it's kind of nerdy to say, just to see whether there have been any advancements in sport-related concussion and just to make sure that what I'm doing as an educator and someone that helps people struggling with symptoms, just to make sure that I'm on track. So I hope that you found this episode to be of value and have yourselves a great weekend and we'll catch up in the next episode. Thank you.